Chapter 1. Monies. Quote, I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. That is, we can't take them violently out of the hands of the government. All we can do is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something they can't stop. Close quotes. Friedrich Hayek, 1984. The main problem with money is that we don't really understand it. We understand how to spend it, but we don't really understand the abstraction that is money itself. That's to say nothing of the general financial education most people receive. You don't join a bank and, upon opening an account, a bank manager sits you down and explains the nature of interest rates, debt and inflation. Probably because they don't understand it either. History lessons in school don't teach people about the gold standard. Money, considering it makes the world go round, is a subject that sees huge amounts of ignorance. It's either just assumed you understand how finance works, or, more likely, it's just not taught to you so you don't really understand how badly the ordinary person is being screwed over. So what is money? in the most simple form. Money is a simple abstraction that something can represent earned value across time. The system works because it is better at attributing resources than a system of bartering one item for another. Humans need an easier way than this to transact and store surplus resources. Hence, money was created to represent this value. We mentioned in the introductory episode the Neolithic Revolution some 12,000 years ago. Imagine human lives before this moment. We were hunter-gatherers with almost no possessions or food stored. We might have had a necklace of, say, animal teeth, perhaps a spear and a few tools, but hardly wealth. Slowly, over time, however, humans started to settle down into societies following the invention of farming. And perhaps the reason we did so was because of the sheer abundance of extra resources available to farming communities. This led to huge increases in the amounts of excess resources swirling around society, especially when compared to what went before. As hunter-gatherers, we were constantly hungry and looking around for food. With farming, we had a nice, reliable supply of wheat to make bread. This move away from meats and berries, and towards a reliance on wheat and bread through farming and carbs, shrunk mankind several inches, as we had a more carbohydrate-rich diet than a protein-rich diet. Despite the lack of nutrition, humans had an obvious desire for easy carbs over hard proteins. Bread has the obvious example of a meat that it could be stored easily for later use. This is essentially the first example of excess resources in human society. This is something that has a value and can be transferred easily. This is basically what wealth is. The storage of excess resources for future use. The holding of wealth also denotes political power. If you're the one with the keys to all the excess food in the grain silo, you're going to have power and leverage over others, especially during the winter months when you can't find food as easily. So, if you fast forward a few thousand years to these farm societies and go to the most advanced of them in around 3200 BC, in Mesopotamia, modern-day southern Iraq, we would find farming communities slowly and gradually developing into towns and then cities. Money, by this point, was still essentially commodities. You would trade cattle, tools or food, or maybe even beer. 
You might even need to sell your own labour in whatever way in order to get enough bread to survive. You trade your freedom for peaceful living in society. For many, peaceful slavery might be better than rugged independence. But for others, there was just no other way to survive. The owners of this labour would not use it to enable those working under their control to work to enrich each other, but would use it to cement their own wealth and power. They used this new power and money to engender loyalty and fealty, to wage wars and find expansions of their power. In southern Iraq, around 3200 BC, however, what we recognise is genuine modern societies began to form. These societies were too complex to merely pay in wheat, beer or livestock. A better system for exchange was needed. Necessity was the mother of the invention. The very reason these societies in modern-day southern Iraq grew more than anywhere else on the planet was because of their technological superiority. However arcane money and writing might be to us now, back then it was world-leading technologies. Why were the better medium exchanges so important for society? Well, growing societies no longer could function on the word of mouth. More transparent and clearer methods of transacting information were needed. As the relative value society placed became too important to rely on word of mouth. The growth of writing and the use of money is far too intertwined and too close together in their estimated dating of invention to have sprung up independently with no mutual interest in each other. In other words, writing must have been invented to record financial transactions. The earliest examples of writing we have in the archaeological records quite clearly back up writing being for accountancy reasons. This was the earliest example of a monetary revolution. Money was first used in certain areas of Mesopotamia like the Akkadian Empire, who used what is now called the Mesopotamian shekel. The shekel was a unit of weight, indicating it was worth a fixed amount of wheat or barley. This is called commodity money, and it's important to remember the difference between commodity money and what we now have, which is called representative money. From these larger civilizations where trade started to take off due to better mediums of exchanges, an even more advanced civilization started to grow in Mesopotamia. Some call them societies, cities or empires. But in a small area of the Akkadian Empire, a smallish town called Babylonia grew up. Babylon sounds like a fictional, mythical place. But it's really just the most famous and perhaps the earliest city in history, about 59 miles southwest of modern-day Baghdad. The reason Babylon is so important and so famous was because it was the first real place society formed into something which today we all have to live with the consequences of. This is the consequences of living in society. The Bible heavily refers to Babylon making the Bible something of a warning against the sins that were perceived to have taken place in Babylon. But really, Babylon was just trying to deal with the problem of how to get all these people to live together more easily. This is why the first codified law, the Code of Hammurabi, was the first ever codified law written into existence. Babylon innovated in banking, allowing the temples to become places of trade, lending and depositing. Clay tablets recorded things like interest and early contracts. Loans were available for the rich, who were the first to exploit these new opportunities of credit. Babylonian-style banking was so hated that the fundamentals behind it were outlawed in both the Bible, with laws against usury, and in the Quran, which bans Reba.
which again is essentially usury. Usury is the now common practice of making unfair or unethical loans. This can be taken in many different ways and can be as light as banning loan sharks to the entire banning of charging interest on loans. Perhaps this was due to the financial booms and busts that must have occurred as debt levels in Babylon rose. But the historical evidence points to a series of bad rulers and a slowdown of innovation, meaning other civilizations like the Hittites were able to catch up and raid Babylon. Babylon rose and fell over the next centuries. But what Babylon did do was help to cement the banking sector in society to try and help facilitate the transfers and the allocation of resources. With functioning and stable civilizations, which could now produce more than the bare minimum of food, there were excesses of resources. This excess was no longer denominated by what it was, but by the abstraction of having a coin to denote the amount of resources, which could be traded between all merchants. Monetary innovation was not just limited to Babylon. Everywhere across the world where societies formed, some form of money took hold. And, as often happens, the Pacific Islands had perhaps the most fascinating of monetary systems. Halfway between Palau and Guam, and not a million miles away from the Philippines, in the Pacific was Yap Island, today in modern-day Micronesia. In 1903, American anthropologist William Henry Furness visited and noted that this tiny island with a few thousand people had a complex society with what looked like a strong monetary system. The island looked untouched by outside civilization and managed to operate on a cashless economy via the use of stone wheels to denote wealth. These large stone wheels, called rye stones, were quarried mainly on Palau and transported to the island. The possession of these stone wheels denoted wealth, while the ownership of these stones relied on word of mouth. All that was needed to transfer the stones and hence wealth was its oral history. Yet Furness was actually standing in the midst of a ruin. David O'Keefe had gone to the islands in 1871 and tried and largely succeeded to break this system. O'Keefe had gotten to Yap with large ships sailing from Hong Kong, loaded up on explosives and gone to Palau. In one of the quarries used to get these Yap Island stones, O'Keefe blasted it up and took a bunch back to Yap. In Yap, this caused a monetary meltdown, as half the village said the stones were legal tender. While the village chiefs, the one with the most to lose from the upheaval of the monetary system, said they were not of value, because they were not mined traditionally with the sweat and the blood of the Yap people. Over time, the people won out, and the new rye stones were accepted. But this caused the other stones to decline in value, and they could only now be used in ceremonial and cultural roles, rather than monetary ones. Yap Island now uses the US dollar. John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman had heard about this system and compared it to the stone standard, and compared the stone standard to what in the West at the time was the use of a similarly useful rock as their monetary basis. The West used the gold standard, which in many ways was much like the rye stone standard. But when the rye stone supply limit was broken, the entire system was too. The use of these stones quite clearly show how anything we want can be money. Even something as cheap as salt has been used as currency in some areas. Salt was easy to keep for the long term, and it could be divided easily. 
The modern-day English word salary is derived from sal, the Latin word for salt. So, having gone over a little bit about money, it's also important to know what debt is. Debt probably originates in Babylonia, and is the curse of so many economic problems, and yet the cure for so many others. It can kickstart economies or economic prospects, or it can doom you as there's no way out of the amount of debt swirling around your head. Debt is very complicated. A little example might be best to show how. Say you owe somebody £5. They write a promissory note to you, saying they will pay you £5 on a future date. You then have another transaction with somebody else. You don't have any real money on you, but you have the £5 promissory note to pay. You can pass that on, right? It's basically money, isn't it? Well, imagine this process across a country of 67 million people, or 330 million people. It all gets very confusing. There is a lot more people, and many more layers built upon that. Derivatives can be three or four times removed from actual money, as promises build upon promises which build upon promises. You quite quickly realise how complicated tracking all the money supply can be. While tracking who owes how much to whom can get very complicated. This is how the system can be manipulated to cheat people out of money, especially when somebody else controls the money supply and can manipulate debts. Debts relies on institutions like banks to facilitate and keep account of everything. So we've no real idea of how much of banking could be automated. But we do know what happens when banks stop working. In fact, everything works okay. In Ireland in 1970, the bankers went on strike. Every major bank was closed, and so many people hoarded cash, thinking it would be what was needed through the months-long strikes. The strikes, however, didn't really negatively impact the Irish economy much at all, as it just kept on going. People wrote each other cheques to be used as debts to keep the economy going. A cheque is simply a note to the bank to pay the named person on the cheque. Ireland, in 1970, was still quite poor by European standards and quite rural. During the strikes, you could go to the pub, pay with the cheque, and the landlord might know and trust you enough to accept the cheque, or debt, as payment, as it was trusted enough to pass on the cheque to suppliers as payment. The whole system actually worked, as bar and shop owners knew whose cheques they could trust and whose they couldn't. It was a money system based on debt and money at the same time, but also based on trust, just like the entire financial system. The trust the Irish people had in each other was more than that for the banks, because everything just kept on working. It was an early example of a peer-to-peer -peer economy working just fine. Now, it wasn't a perfect system. Eventually, things needed cashing in and sorting out. Transactions needed logging and cross-referencing. But if you had a system that did this automatically without banks, then there wouldn't be much need for banks at all. You'll notice how the bankers have never tried going on strike since. The Irish system, of course, requires lots of trust. But then so do all money systems. When the trust system breaks down, it doesn't matter if there are banks or there aren't. When it does break down, as it did in 1920s Germany, Zimbabwe in the 2000s, or Venezuela in the 2010s, all hell breaks loose. But Ireland, like much of Northern Europe, has a lot of trust in institutions and other people. German marks or Zimbabwean dollars during their hyperinflationary era are so interesting to think about, especially if you compare it to the Irish problem. 
in the hyperinflationary eras, it was the currency itself that lost trust. Not the banks or the economy or politics, but the very cash itself. These hyperinflationary currencies were mediums of exchanges, but clearly not stores of value. So poor a store of value was this hyperinflationary paper money that its value would radically go upwards in a single day. A store of value has to be a medium of exchange, but the best medium of exchanges would also be a good store of value. So we talked about it a minute ago. Hyperinflation, but also inflation and deflation. These are all words that to some might sound like jargon, but are crucial in understanding how money works. Inflation is simply an increase in money supply. As the supply increases, the demand ever so slightly decreases. This might only be at a rate of 1% or 2% a year. But this increase in money will eventually catch up with you. Why does this happen? Surely we can just make one of something and call it a day. Well, it's very difficult to stop the urge to get something for free by making more of something. Furthermore, inflation is not unwanted by those who run the economy. Central banks like to control the economy through the only real weapon they have, the money printer. Inflation can be used to manage debt levels. As you pump up the amount of money into the economy, all debts suddenly become more manageable as there's more money in the economy. Central bankers use the power of the money printer to keep the economy going growing it in cyclical cycles as the economy tries to make people either prioritise spending or saving. People who spend money will spend it in stores and shops, which benefit those who earn the revenue from increasing consumerism. The rich and wealthy are not really affected by inflation, as they store most of their wealth in assets and not currency. How is this extra money created and put into the economy? In several ways. The most obvious way is money printing by central banks. But perhaps a bigger reason has been the over-proliferation of bank credit creation. That's loaning money to me and you. Today, loans account for most of the inflationary pressure of the money supply. We saw in the previous chapter how loans are no longer banks moving money from saving accounts and towards other investments, but are more interested in the artificial creation of money. This has been the primary way money has been added into the economy over the past few decades. Easy credit creation has resulted in the inflation of housing and other assets and not productive investments like increasing economic efficiency. With banks able to create money from nothing and drop it into the economy, it creates inflation, starting with the first things to receive this new money as it trickles down into the economy. This is property and assets. So, getting back to our historical timeline. We were looking at Yap Island with their famed stones. But of course in the West, we didn't use rocks like that for money. We preferred shinier rocks. The first true coins were brought in by the Lydians in the 6th century BC. These coins were struck in 640 BC by King Alite and represented a great change in how money was seen. Rather than being backed by something like wheat, money's value was now abstract. The coin itself, based from gold and silver, was the valuable resource, not just what it represented. The greater abstraction in money led to greater flexibility and the need for trust, 
but also led to a booming market economy around Greece and Asia Minor. This coin money was something of a monetary revolution. Money had long been known, with Genesis in the Bible being the earliest biblical reference, with a reference to slaves, quote, being bought with money, close quotes. Greek historian Herodotus wrote how the women of Lydia, where the first coins were minted, began to sell themselves into marriage for this money. If only the Lydians had had access to OnlyFans. Lydia was the first place to need this money, as it was located on an island acting as a trading nation between the Med and the Near East. As a crossroads, Lydia needed the best medium of exchange it could get in order to standardise trade. Metals had been used as money before, but the Lydians were the first to standardise coinage by minting a gold-silver alloy called electrum. This was copied throughout the Greek world. This money was really only used by merchants and not ordinary people. With most people in this time still subsistence farmers and not able to produce a surplus of resources in order to need a store of value. But one wonders if this change in the 6th century BC's monetary order facilitated trade across the Mediterranean, which would later cause the Hellenic Golden Age. As pretty much all scholars recognise that the classical age of Greece began, coincidentally or not, not long after the minting of these new coins. The increase in trade would have led to economic specialisations and allowed people like Socrates, Plato or Pythagoras to flourish. The end of the classical period was due to the rise of Alexander the Great, who was the first head of state to put his head on a coin. It was probably an ego thing, but with an empire from Greece to India, it would serve as a reminder of who was in charge. Roman coins were then used throughout the empire, and its coins are now collector's items. I'm not going to go through Roman monetary history, as, apart from a few debasements that caused many economic problems that were eventually solved by a better currency, it is more the fall of Rome that interests me. The fall of Rome led to a new historical era, the medieval period. The collapse of the Roman Empire also meant a collapse of the Roman currency and a collapse in trade. The retreat of Romans in Europe led to a centuries-long economic depression as easy trade dried up, which was caused by the lack of standardised coinage in Europe that had once been assumed to be stable through the backing of Pax Romana. The medieval period was a large depressionary era, which took Europe really until the challenge of Islam to unify as a force to solidify Christendom in order to start bouncing back economically. Following the Crusades, coinage started to be used more in Europe again. Trade too started to grow back, especially in Northern Europe, where the German princely city-states, England and the Low Countries in Scandinavia started to mint and use more reliable coinage, as trading leagues like the Hanseatic League caught up with the Southern European trading leagues. In the 9th century AD in China, paper notes were introduced. China was probably the most advanced civilization at this point with the technological edge. This made the paper itself the technology that gave these notes value. You would have thought that in 2021 we would have moved on from paper notes. But don't worry, the Bank of England has a great idea. They'll make the notes from plastic instead. That'll solve all our monetary problems, won't it? Anyway, in 1227, Mongol ruler... Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis, decreed that all gold and silver was no longer currency 
and only paper notes were legal tender. This was on the pain of death. Which is pretty much the same thing Franklin Roosevelt did in the United States in the 1930s when the US government confiscated all private gold holdings. More on that to come. So from Kublai Khan and the introduction of paper money, I want to skip a little bit forward to Britain's monetary history for the rest of this episode. Don't worry, in the next episode we will go back a little bit and start looking at European monetary history from the Renaissance. But Britain, as historically one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and since the discovery of the New World, a conduit between the old and new, was very much like Lydia in classical Greek times. Britain was a trading nation surrounded by a continent of warmongers, who spent the best part of a century fighting over which version of the same god they believed in. Britain's lack of interest in much of this had seen it develop a modern market economy, and first saw many of the modern developments in money and banking that will be crucial in understanding how money works today. Soon, these British ideas of money and finance spread wherever the Brits did. John Kenneth Galbraith, an economist, noted that tobacco was starting to be used as money in Virginia soon after the English colonists landed in Jamestown in 1607, while in 1642 the colonists declared it to be legal tender. They too outlawed trade in gold and silver. This was actually a brilliant move. The colonists exchanged with Britain, and so, in effect, the legal tender was pound sterling. But the tobacco standard in the economy worked as a floating exchange rate between the price of tobacco and sterling. Using tobacco as a medium of exchange meant there was a ferocious amount of money pumped into producing more tobacco, spurring more investment and more production. This exchange rate was so successful that tobacco, or promissory notes for tobacco, were used as currencies until the end of the 19th century, when the federal government took over the issuance of money. There are good arguments for government money printing and monetary flexibility. The Bank of England was able to print money during the Napoleonic Wars to fund the war, which of course caused inflation. The topic of currency debasement became a large debate during the 19th century. The 1844 Bank Charter Act was a huge debate in Parliament. Economist David Ricardo argued that money should not be issued at the behest of governments. Ricardo won out, with the results of the Act meaning the Bank of England was only able to use notes secured by government bonds or with enough gold to cover it. The Bank Charter Act caused the parliamentarians to discuss the very nature of money and its stability within the broader economy. However, rather than being a watershed moment for monetary stability, the 1844 debate was the last on money creation, in Britain at least, until 2014, when Conservative MP Steve Baker introduced a new debate on money creation in Parliament. You can go on YouTube and watch the whole debate, the first for 170 years, and it's shocking to see how many MPs just don't simply understand the concept of money. I am going to play an extended clip from that debate, but I'm going to leave it to the end of the podcast. It's slightly lengthy, but worth listening to, I think. So, by 1876, other countries in Europe were signing up to the gold standard. Currencies were fixed at a rate which locked countries into a carefully calibrated monetary equilibrium. This gold standard was a solid system, but it had several catches, such as the scarcity of gold. The scarcity of gold pushed Europe to finding places 
around the world that had lots of gold, namely Africa. The scramble for Africa that followed was brutal, but gold was one of the keys as to why it happened. Britain wouldn't have called one of its colonies the Gold Coast otherwise. The gold standard led to a period of inflation and deflation, both of which tended to hurt the poor in different ways. This damage to the poor was seen to cause political instability. In both Britain and Germany, the late 19th century and early 20th century saw the rise of working classes who pressed for more political reform. But it was only with the World War when the gold standard broke down. Most combatants in 1914 stopped allowing notes to be traded for gold. However, America stayed on the gold standard, allowing it to benefit from increased exports to Britain and France. Gold reserves were depleted throughout the war, and promissory notes were converted to just paper money. Churchill advocated a return to the gold standard in 1925. But this ended in disaster, when the government resorted to using the pre-World War I exchange rate, which, considering the devastating effect the war had on British finances, was idiotic. By 1931, with the Great Depression, Britain left the gold standard again and for the last time. What had become a norm, that of monetary stability, based on fixed value, was now seen as an optional extra. Political stability was seen as more important than financial stability. The move to government money led to the two great 20th century economic theories both forming. Both tried to solve the problem of how you manage the economy when the basis of your economy, its money, has no real value. Government now controlled the money, money controlled the people, and so governments began to control the people ever more, spending more and more money to solve political issues, as money and its relation to the value of labour was now severed. The two great economic theories of the 20th century were Keynesianism and monetarism. John Maynard Keynes argued that more income causes more money, and therefore governments should try and push for full employment to create larger economies. Meanwhile, the monetarists argued that simply having money causes interest. So they argued that in a crisis, you should pump up the money supply to stimulate the economy. Neither were overly bothered with the equilibrium between what things cost and their value. The value of, say, a tradesman's wage and asset prices, most notably property, started to diverge as value was related to government priorities, not to efficient allocation of resources. Both these monetary theories were based upon a political currency, and not a currency of fair exchange. In order to provide full employment, it is the government who needs to allocate resources, something it's very bad at. In the monetary theories, simply increasing the supply of money, as O'Keefe did in Yap Island, resulted in the monetary basis beginning to lose its original meaning over time. The very equilibrium of money becomes lost from real value, as the government allocates resources to where it is politically important and not financially important. The gold standard of monetary policy has been just that, the gold standard. But since we've left it, things have not gone well. The 20th century may be considered, in future, a lost century for economics, as more and more time and money was put into the dismal science. Yet for some reason, nobody thought of trying to solve economic problems via a restoration of purchasing power to money. The Nixon shock we'll talk about in future was the final death knell of the gold standard. 
after it removed the gold standard entirely from the world. And the dollar was no longer backed by gold, but only US military power. The power of and control over this currency meant the United States had political, if not economic reasons, to build its huge military-industrial complex. The ascent of the dollar as the reserve currency in the world meant all of the countries were essentially just derivatives of the US dollar. This system would give the US huge amounts of political power, but for the ordinary American and for many around the world, it was not a good thing. So thanks for listening to the episode, but we aren't quite done yet. We're going to be played out by a 20 minute clip of the 2014 debate on money creation. Just remember, this debate took place in 2014. Now, in 2021, the issues are only worse. One of the most memorable quotes about money and banking is usually attributed to Henry Ford. He said, uh, it's well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Well, let's hope we don't have a revolution, Mr Speaker, because I feel sure we're all Conservatives on this side. How's it done? Well, the process is so simple, the mind is repelled. Whenever a bank (coughs) makes a loan, it simultaneously creates a matching deposit in the borrower's bank account, thereby creating new money. Many times I've been told that this is ridiculous, even by one employee who'd previously worked for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation of the United States. The explanation is actually taken from the Bank of England article, Money Creation in the Modern Economy. It seems to me rather hard to dismiss. Today, while the state maintains a monopoly on the creation of notes and coins and central bank reserves, that monopoly has been diluted to give us a hybrid system because private banks can create claims on money, and those claims are precisely equivalent to uh, notes and coins in their economic function. It is a criminal offence to counterfeit banknotes or coins, but a banking licence is formal permission from the government to create equivalent money at interest. Now, there are a wide range of perspectives on whether this is legitimate. The economist, uh, the Spanish economist, Jesus Huerta de Soto, explains in his book Money, Bank, Credit and Economic Cycles that it is positively a fraud, uh, a fraud which causes the business cycle. Positive Money, a British campaign group, are campaigning for the complete nationalisation of money production. On the other hand, free banking scholars George Selgin, Kevin Dowd, others would argue that what should happen is uh, that uh, perhaps the state might define money in terms of a commodity like gold, but then banking should be conducted under the ordinary commercial law without legal privileges or of any kind. They would allow the issue of claims on money proper, backed by, or, uh, backed by other assets, provided that the issuer bore all of the risk. Now, some want the complete denationalisation of money. <coughs> Cryptocurrencies are now performing the task of showing us that that is possible. This argument that banks should not be allowed to create money has an honourable history. The 1844 Bank Charter Act was enacted because banks' issue of notes in excess of gold was causing economic chaos, particularly through reckless lending and imprudent speculation. And once again, I'm minded that the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Sir Robert Peel spent some considerable time just emphasising that the definition of a pound was a specific quantity and quality of gold. The notion that anyone might reject that was considered ridiculous, and how times change. Um, the, one of the problems with the Bank Charter Act, that was, it, was, it failed to recognise that bank deposits were functionally equivalent to notes, so it didn't succeed in its aims. There was a massive controversy at the time between the so-called currency school and the banking school. It appeared the currency school had won. In fact, in practice, the banks went on to create deposits drawn by cheque, and uh, the ideas of the banking school went forward. But the, the idea that one school or the other uh, won it really ought to be rejected. The truth is we've ended up with something of a mess. Uh, We're in a debt crisis of historic proportions because for far too long profit-maximising banks have been lending money into existence as debt with too few effective restraints on their conduct and all the risks of doing so forced upon the taxpayer by the power of the state. A blend of legal privilege, private interest and political necessity 
has created over the centuries a system which today lawfully promotes the excesses which capitalism is so frequently condemned for. It is undermining faith in the market economy on which we rely not merely for our prosperity but for our lives. Now, thankfully, the institution of money is a human social institution and it can be changed. It has been changed and I believe it should be changed further. And the timing of today's debate is serendipitous. The Prime Minister has explained that the warning lights are flashing on the dashboard of the world economy. Uh, Quantitative easing, it looks like it will be stepped up in Europe and in Japan, just as it's being uh, uh, ramped out in in America and, of course, it's stopped in the UK. But if anything, we're not at the end of a great experiment in monetary policy. We're at some midpoint. The experiment will not be over until all of this QE has been unwound, if it ever uh, will be. So turning then to the effects on society, we can't really understand the effect of money production on society without remembering that our society is founded on the division of labour. We have to share the burden of providing for one another. We therefore, of course, must have money as a means of exchange, a final payment of debts, and uh, also as a store of value and unit of account. It's through the price system that money allows us to reckon profit and loss. That guides entrepreneurs and investors to best allocate resources to the needs of society. This is why, of course, every party now in this House accepts the market economy. The question is whether our society, or I believe our society, is vulnerable to false signals through that price system. It's certainly why any flaws in our monetary arrangements feed into the price system and uh, and become uh, 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 permeated through all of our society. In their own ways, uh, Keynes and Mises, two men who economists who never particularly agreed with one another, were both able to say that currency debasement was the best way to overturn the existing basis of society. Even before QE began, We lived in an era of chronic uh, inflation, monetary inflation, unprecedented in the industrial age. Uh, Between uh, 1991 and 2009, the money supply increased fourfold. It tripled between 97 and 2010, from £700 billion to £2.2 trillion, accelerating into the crisis. Now, you just cannot increase the money supply at this rate without profound consequences. They are the consequences which are with us today. But it goes back further than this. Commons Library and the Office for National Statistics produced a paper giving consumer price uh, inflation back to 1750. What we see is a flat line until about the 20th century, when we had some inflation over the wars. But then from 1971, the value of money collapsed. What had happened? The Bretton Woods Agreement had come to an end. The last link to gold had been severed. And that removed one of the most effective restraints on credit expansion. There's no doubt whatever that the the period of our lives has been a a time of enormous economic, social and political transformation, but so too was the 19th century. And yet during the 19th century there was a secular decline in prices overall. And the truth is any amount of reasonable amount of money is adequate if prices are allowed to adjust. We all are aware of the phenomenon that computers, cars, more or less anything whose production isn't determined by the state, all of those things, their prices become gently lower as productivity increases. This is the rise, a rise in real living standards. We want prices to become lower in real terms compared to wages. That's why we argue about living standards. The subject at issue today is one which goes to the heart of the survival of a free civilization. It was something which Hayek wrote about, and I think it's absolutely true. If I were allowed props in the, in the chamber, Mr Speaker, I might wave this $100 trillion dollars Zimbabwe note, and you can hold bad politics in your hand. Uh, that is the, the truth of the matter. People try to explain that hyperinflation has never happened just through technocratic error. They happen in the context of, for example, extremely high debt levels and politicians being unable to constrain them. Well, in what circumstances do we find ourselves today, where we're still borrowing broadly triple what Labour was borrowing? But something about which I get incredibly frustrated is this word capital. I've heard economists talk about capital when what they mean is money, and typically what they mean when they say money is new bank credit, because 97% of the money supply is bank credit. Well, that's not capital. Capital's the means of production. But I fear we've started to label as capital money which has been loaned into existence at interest without any real backing. 
And that might explain why it is that our capital stock has been undermined, that we've de-industrialised, and actually why it is that real wages have dropped. Because in the end, real wages can only rise if productivity increases, and that means an increase in the real stock of capital. Just to return to where I wanted to go, where did all this money that was created as debt go? Well, when I look at the sectoral lending uh, figures, I see that some went into um, commercial property, there were some went into personal loans, credit cards and so on. Actually, the rise of lending into real productive businesses, excluding the financial sector, was relatively moderate. But overwhelmingly, where this new debt went was into mortgages and into the financial sector. Now, exchange and the distribution of wealth are part of the same social process. If you buy an apple, then the distribution of apples and money changes. If money is used to buy houses, then we shouldn't ex it, it, it would be at all surprised that if you increase the supply of money into houses, you boost the price of those homes. I mean, the vast majority of us live upon our labour. Uh, and it's absolutely true of all sides of the House, the vast majority of us live upon our labour. But what do we do? We work in order to exchange, obtain money, in order to obtain the things we need uh, on which to survive. There's a categorical difference between earning your money through the sweat of your brow and making money by just creating it when you lend, some, lend it to somebody in exchange for a claim on the deeds to their house. It's fundamentally categorically different, and it goes to the heart of how capitalism works. I appreciate very little of this is going on in an election leaflet, but I think it nevertheless matters very much indeed. Perhaps I'll have to ask my opponent if he's followed the debate. But the point I'm making is this. If a great fountain of new money gushes up into the financial sector, we should not be surprised that we find that the banking system is far wealthier than anybody else. We shouldn't be surprised if financings, housing, uh, London and the South East are far wealthier than anywhere else. Indeed, I remember when QE began, when QE began, house prices started rising in Chiswick and Islington. The point is this, Mr Speaker, that money is not neutral. It redistributes real income from, from uh, later to earlier owners, that is, from the poor to the rich on the whole. Now, this distribution effect is key to understanding the effect of new money on society. I think it's the primary cause of almost all conflicts revolving about the, uh, around the production of money, the relations between uh, creditors and debtors. The distributional effects of monetary policy explains that uh, people would have been worse off if the, if the bank had not engaged in it. It was, of course, an emergency measure. But one of the things the paper says is that asset purchases by the bank have pushed up the price of equities at least as much as they've pushed up the price of gilts. The bank's Andy Haldane said, we've deliberately, uh, I, I paraphrase, we've deliberately inflated the biggest bond market bubble in history. Once the bank legitimises the idea of money creation and giving it to people in order to get the economy going, the question then arises, why not give it to other people if you're going to create it and give it away? Well, this going goes, well, what is money? Well, I think money is the basis of a moral existence. We should, in our lives, be exchanging value for value. One of the problems with the current system is we're not exchanging value for value. Something's being created in vast quantities out of nothing and given away. Now, the bank explains that 40% of the assets uh, bought the assets that have been inflated are held by 5% of households, 80% by people over 45 which seems then very clear to me, if you'll allow me, seems to me very clear then that QE, a policy of the state to deeply intervene in money, is a deliberate policy of increasing the wealth of people who are older and wealthier. Bottom line on this is really that I want to live in a society where even the most selfish person is compelled by our institutions to serve the needs of other people. And that institution is called a free market economy, because in a free market economy you don't get any bailouts and you don't get to live at somebody else's expense. You have to produce what other people want. One of the things which has gone wrong is the right have ended up defending institutions which are fundamentally statist. We have ended up pretending that the banking system and the financial system is free market, when the truth is it is the most hideous corporatist mess. What I want is a free market banking system, as I will come on to. Mr Speaker, I wanted to make some remarks about price signals, but I want to really just foreshorten them. I'll try and cover it as briskly as I can. It was the subject of my maiden speech. Interest rates are a price signal like any other. They should be telling markets about people's preferences for goods now compared to goods later. If they're deliberately manipulated, they will tell entrepreneurs the wrong thing. They'll therefore corrupt people's investment decisions. The bond markets, the equity markets, are there to allocate capital. 
If interest rates are manipulated, if new money is thrown into the system, those prices get detached from the real-world values they're supposed to be connected to. What resources are available, what technology is available, what people prefer. The problem is, these prices which have been detached from reality still continue to guide entrepreneurs and investors. But if they're now guiding entrepreneurs and investors in a direction which takes them away from the real desires of the public, the available resources and the technology, we should not then be surprised if we end up with a later disaster. In short, if after prices have been, up through, been bid up by a credit expansion, they're bound to fall when later the real world catches up with it. It's why economies now are suffering this wrecking ball of inflation followed by deflation. And here is the rub, because throughout most of my life, the way that the monetary policy authorities have responded to these corrections has been to pump more new money. Previously, it's been through ever cheaper credit. Now it's been through QE. This raises the question of where this all goes. Back to the point my honourable friend for Stone provoked in me, that this might actually be pointing towards an end of this monetary order. Now, that is not necessarily something to be feared, because the monetary order changed several times in the 20th century. Where I want to conclude, Mr Speaker, is we've ended up in really something of a mess. The Governor asked whether the orderliness of the transition... Uh, sorry, he was talking about the orderliness of the transition once interest uh, rates normalise. He said it, whether it would be orderly was an open question. I think he's actually demonstrating considerable optimism appropriate to his role. I think it's extremely unlikely that we'll have an orderly transition once interest rates start to normalise. The problem is basically that government wants to spend too much money. It's always been the same throughout history. Governments used to want to fund wars. Now, for all good moral decent humanitarian reasons, we want to fund health, welfare and education well beyond what the public will pay in taxes. That's meant that we needed easy money to support the borrowing. I'll finish by saying, well, what's to be done? A range of remedies are being proposed. They range from positive money's proposal to completely nationalise the production of money. Some want variations on a return to gold, perhaps with free banking, and some want the spontaneous emergence of alternative monies like Bitcoin. I just would point out that Walter Badgelt is often prayed in aid of the current system. If one reads Lombard Street, he didn't actually support central banking. He thought it was useless to try and propose any change. But what we see today is that with um, alternative currencies like Bitcoin spontaneously emerging, it is now possible through technology that in a generation we won't all be putting our money in a few big mega banks held as liabilities issued out of nothing. I'm ever more convinced that there is no way to change the present monetary order until the ideas behind it have been t tested to destruction. And I do mean tested to destruction, and it's an extremely serious issue. But it will not change until it becomes apparent that the ideas behind the system are not tenable. Bitcoin shows us that peer-to-peer, -peer, non-state money is practical and effective. I've used it to buy an accessory for a camera, perfectly ordinary legal product. It was easier to use than a credit card, and it showed me the price in pounds or any other currency I like. It is becoming possible for people to move away from state money. So what I would like to see is every obstacle to the creation of alternative currencies within the ordinary commercial law removed. We should expand the range of commodities and instruments related to those commodities which are uh, treated like money, like gold, so um, uh, exempt VAT and capital gains tax, uh, and it should be possible to pay tax in those new monies. And we must not fall into the trap that the United States has fallen into of obstructing innovation. Finally, Mr Speaker, we are in the midst of an unprecedented global experiment in monetary policy and debt. It is likely, as Philip Coggan set out, that this will result in a new global monetary order. Whether it will be for good or ill, I do not know. But as technology and debt advance, I am sure we should be ready for a transformation. Society has suffered too much already under the present monetary orthodoxy. Free enterprise should now be allowed to change it. Order. The question is that this House has...